Hello church, this is Pastor John English. It's good to talk to you. I thought that it would be beneficial for us during this time to uh, try and remind ourselves of the core truths of the faith, and one way to do that is to go through a catechism. A catechism is a series of questions and answers. It comes from a Greek word, katecheo, which just means to train out loud, orally. And what we're going to do is use the Baptist catechism, which has been used for hundreds of years. Uh, an adapted version of this was used in Spurgeon's church, for example. And so we'll go through the catechism one question at a time and, and learn more about um, what Scripture says about God and about man and about salvation and about his church and about his law and about his gospel and all these things. And hopefully this will be an encouraging time for you and that this will be a useful video uh, for yourself in your private devotion, but also in family worship at your house. You can use these videos for that. And so for help during this, I'm going to be using uh, Benjamin Bedome's commentary, his exposition of the Baptist Catechism, among other things. Um, and I'll link to these things and, and the Catechism and show you all of the Scripture references in the comments below. So question number one, who is the first and chiefest being? Who is the first and chiefest being? And the answer is God is the first and chiefest being. God is the first of all things. He's the preeminent one. He's the cause of everything. He's the one that guides providence. He's the one who governs over all of creation. And so scripture tells us this in numerous ways. Isaiah 44, 6, I am the first, which sounds very similar to what he says in Revelation. I am the alpha and the omega. He's the first cause of all beings. He's the first cause of all secondary causes. He is the highest of all of creation. He's the one in whom we live and we move and we have our being, Acts 17, 28. Paul says at the Areopagus, he's the first one who guides providence. And he's also the first one who displays love. 1 John 4, 19, we love him because he first loved us. And so what does that mean for us? It means that God should be first in our thoughts. When we wake, Psalm 139, 18, when I awake, God is still there with me. He should be the first one that we esteem. No one above him. He is the highest in all of our thoughts. He's the first one that we should give ourselves to. And likewise, he should be the one to whom we give our first fruits, the best of our talents and our energies and our prayers and our, and our money and, and every aspect of our life. He is the first, the primary, the primary spot in all of our lives. But the question also asks us, who is the first and chiefest being, or highest being, the greatest being? And of course, that answer is God is the first and chiefest being. Who is like thee, O Lord, Exodus 15, 11. He's above all of the pretenders, all of the false gods, Psalm 95, 3. He is a great king above all gods. He's the chief in heaven. Who in heaven can be compared to you, O God, Psalm 89, 6. And he's, of course, the chief on earth. And is he, is he one of many possible gods? No, he is called the Most High God in many places in Scripture. Psalm 56, 2, for example. And he will always be that way. Psalm 92, 8. He is the Most High God forever. And so as the chiefest of beings, what does that then mean for us? Well, it means that we should love him chiefly. It means that we should love him with all of our heart and mind and soul and strength we're told, is the beginning of the law. We should always fear him as well. Fear not only those that can kill the body, but fear him who can throw both body and soul in hell. Matthew 10, 28. And we should also know that 
as the chiefest of being, he is our greatest and highest good. And we should find our joy in him. So as I close, a couple of reflections upon this question. Who is the first and chiefest being? God is the first and chiefest being. Well, this question really makes clear the transcendence of God. We could say the otherness of God. There's a grand gulf between us and God as far as our being. This is, theologians call this the creature-creator distinction. He's utterly different than us. He's not like us. We're completely contingent. We exist only because something prior to us brought us into existence. But that's not so with God. He is eternally unmade. He didn't have a starting point. We have a starting point. And so we should realize that the mercy of God extended to such creatures that could offer nothing to him is a bewildering fact. And what more, what the, the condescension of the Son to submit to taking on frail humanity to redeem such a sinful and rebellious people. What mercy, what grace. And likewise, this, this question highlights for us the, the worship that ought to be rendered to God. It's, it reminds us of our duty to Him. The law starts with we should have no other gods before Him. Be, he is our Creator God and our Sustainer God and our providentially guiding and governing God. And we, as His creatures, owe Him worship. And this question is also a comfort to our fearful souls. He is the first and chiefest being, the first and highest being. And we know that if everything else is contingent upon Him, then there's nothing in all of creation that's greater than Him. There's nothing in all of creation that can uh, change Him. And we know that, as Paul says, nothing in all of creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. No, there's no sickness. There's no demonic action. There's no relapse into sin. There's no weakness of our flesh. There's nothing that's more powerful than our first and chiefest God. And we know that nothing can snatch us from His hand. Praise God for that. Amen. Hello, church. We're working our way through the Baptist Catechism, and I wanted to show you a resource. This is uh, the Baptist Catechism set to music, sung by Dr. Oreck, who teaches at Boyce College uh, at Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. This is put out by Founders Press, and I really encourage you to look at that if you're looking for a musical way to sing through the catechism. It's very helpful to get it deep in your mind. So without further ado, we'll move on to question number two. If you'll remember question one, uh, we did in the last video, who is the first and chiefest being? And the answer is, of course, God is the first and chiefest being. And question two is, ought everyone to believe that there's a God? Ought everyone believe? Everyone? And the answer is, yes, everyone ought to believe that there is a God, and it's their great sin and folly who do not. There are many who say in their heart that there is no God, Psalm 14, 1. And this is a door that leads to all sorts of immoralities. They do abominable works, corrupt works, that same psalm does, uh, does say. Um, and this belief that there is a God is really the stepping point, the first step towards uh, vital faith and all practical good religion. You cannot come to call upon God unless you have first believed, Romans 10, 14. And this is an awful thought to the wicked. Jeremiah 5, is cited saying that they are fearful of the Lord, the wicked are. They, they know that there is a God deep down, but they hate him and they are afraid that they're going to be judged by him. And all the nations that do not believe will be judged by him. We know that even those angelic hosts are around him who themselves are 
without sin. They rest not day and night. They say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And indeed, even the devils believe that there is a God, James 2.19, and they tremble. And so for those human beings made in God's image to say, no, there is no God is inconceivable. And we would do well to believe that there is one God and not to fall into the ignorance, the folly of um, denying that there is a God. Everyone has some knowledge of God and they are without excuse because of it, Romans chapter 1. And so what do we do with this? How do we apply this? What is this of use in our life? Well, we can think as believers and say, what a grace it is to believe in God. Without God's efficacious calling, without Him enlivening our souls by His grace, we would be stuck and willful in our ignorance and our unbelief. But we can praise God that we have been awakened to His majesty and moved by His initiative-taking love to respond in belief. Secondly, we can also think about how this question fosters our own humility, to think about God's grace changing us. If it weren't for God's grace to spark us to belief, then we would still be dead in our trespasses and sin. He chose to change our hearts. And it's not because of some innate goodness, some innate worthiness, some innate majesty that we had, but because of His own mercy, Scripture tells us. Therefore, I have no reason to boast. I have no reason to brag. And furthermore, this drives us into the third point that we should be reminded of our great duty to proclaim God's gospel. There are those out there that are ignorant of the things of God, and we have an obligation to proclaim God's good news to them because how will they believe if they have not heard? We must be faithful to proclaim just as Christ has come and has proclaimed to us through His Word and through His Holy Spirit that we might believe and to the end of Him being glorified. Amen. Hello, everyone. We're back with our study through the Baptist Catechism, and today we'll do question three. How may we know that there is a God? How can we know that there is a God? And the answer that the Catechism gives is that the light of nature in man and the works of God both plainly declare that there is a God, but His Word and His Spirit only do it fully and effectually for the salvation of sinners. So let's break down that answer. So how can we know that there is a God? Well, it starts by saying that the light of nature in man, which is language that comes, it's also in the Westminster Larger Catechism, and it talks about, uh, it's language of what we can know from uh, fallen human reason and in our consciences. And we know that after the fall, our understanding is darkened, Ephesians 4:18. but we can know from the light of nature in man, from our very reasoning, that there is a God. There must be a starting point. There must be an unmoved mover, um, pagan philosophers have said. But that knowledge is not enough for us. Further, the works of God, right, proclaim that he is our creator. Romans chapter 1 talks about this, about the invisible things of God from creation are clearly seen and are being understood in the things that are made. Um, Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God. We know that our bodies, that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. We can look at the beasts of creation and know this. We can look at providence. We can look at uh, the grand parts of creation, like the Grand Canyon. We can look at a terrible thundercloud and, and feel in awe of God and his creation. God's very miracles proclaim his existence. 
but all of that is not sufficient for us to be saved. We need the gospel to teach us how it is that we are to be made right with God. We need God's word. And even more than that, for us to come to a saving knowledge of God, we need his spirit to work in us. Um, Jesus, uh, citing Isaiah 6, talks about that you hear and you do not understand. There are many people that know what the word of God says, but do not believe it. Indeed, the demons know that there is a God and they hate him for it. But for us to come to a saving, a loving knowledge of God, we need his Holy Spirit to work. So a few closing reflections on this. We can start with saying that everyone knows that there is a God. Everyone deep down inside knows that. They may be afraid to speak about it. They may be trying to suppress that knowledge or failing to acknowledge God for who he is. But creation and reason and our conscience and morality, all of these things point to the fact that there is a God. But we need the word of God for us to be saved. And let's not be shy about speaking the word of God. It's We have to be, remember, it's not my winsomeness, it's not my creativity, it's not my persuasiveness, but it's God's word that is needed to save sinners. Furthermore, as the question suggests, the spirit of God is needed for that word of God to be effectual. We need God's spirit to replace hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. And so whether we're training our children or we're talking with our neighbors or we're preaching in the streets, we must be faithful to proclaim God's word diligently and to use a, an illustration from Lottie Moon, we're piling on gospel kindling on top of um, preparing a fire. And we pray that the fire of the Holy Spirit would draw near and, and all it would take was just a little spark to set it ablaze in faith. And that's what we want to do. We pray diligently and we proclaim the word faithfully. Amen. Hello, church. We're back with question four of the Baptist Catechism. And question four is, what is the word of God? What is the Word of God? And the answer is the Holy Scriptures of the Old and the New Testament are the Word of God, and they are the only certain rule of faith and obedience. The Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments are the Word of God, and they are the only certain rule of faith and obedience. And that's significant. Each part, let's break it down and see what God's Word says. Are the Scriptures of the Old and the New Testament the Word of God? Well, yes. Second Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is God-breathed or is given by the inspiration of God. And so were these men that were writing down Scripture moved? How did they, how did they write down Scripture? Well, 2 Peter 1, 21 tells us that holy men spoke as they were carried along by the ministering work of the Holy Spirit. And so were the Old Testament writings inspired? Yes. 2 Peter 1, 21, the prophecy came in the old times, not by the will of man, but by the will of God. And we could say the same thing about the New Testament. For example, Revelation 1.1 says, This is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God sent by his angel to his servant. God himself carried along these men, these authors, as they wrote the word of God. And so what, what do we know about this word? Well, it's our rule, right? Psalm 119.105, Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. It teaches me how I ought to walk in this life, in this life of darkness. And do we need such a rule? Yes. Isaiah 53, 6, we are all like sheep who have gone astray, each one of us, to our own way. Our own way. And is, is God's word enough for us? Well, yes. Psalm 19, verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, making wise those that are simple. And it's indeed plain for us. It is an evident rule for us. Proverbs 8, verse 8. 
8 and 9, the words of his mouth are plain to all that understand. And does God's word cover everything we need to know in the Christian life? Yes. His commandments are exceedingly broad, Psalm 119, 96. And does his word work for a season but not for another season? Or is it an abiding rule for us? Yes, it is an abiding rule. 1 Peter 1, 23, the word of the Lord endures forever. And so this is significant for us. And we ought to, Philippians 3, 16, walk by the same rule. We should receive it with readiness of mind, Acts 17, 11. And so how do we apply this? Why is this important for us? Well, we know that God's word is trustworthy because God himself is trustworthy. Or to say it another way, the doctrine of Scripture is grounded in the doctrine of God, in theology proper, God's very essence. If God is trustworthy, then his word will also be so. And it's significant because we don't have to stumble around trying to figure out how we should live in this life and how to please God. No, God has told us in his word everything we need to make him happy, everything we need for our holiness, which is also everything we need for our joy. And the fact that God's word is our only certain rule of faith and obedience is significant. That means we're not bound by anything outside of God's word. We're not bound by the opinions of man, not bound by our feelings, not bound by our conscience, not bound by traditions. No, everything in God's word and the doctrine found therein is the infallible rule of faith and practice. And finally, let us reflect upon God's goodness and mercy to us because what a privilege it is for us to live now where we have copies of God's word piled up on our shelves, access to it on our phones at any moment, copies of God's word in our own language, and copies of our own possession. Most of the people in church history, most of the time in church history did not have that luxury, and we too often take it for granted. Praise God for his sweet mercies to us. Amen. Hello church, we're back with question five of the Baptist Catechism. Question five reads as follows. May all men make use of the Holy Scriptures. May all men make use of the Holy Scriptures. And the answer is all men are not only permitted, but commanded and exhorted to read, hear, and understand the Holy Scriptures. This is speaking of men generically, so it includes men and women. All Christians, we could say, are not only permitted, but are commanded and exhorted to read, hear, and understand the Holy Scriptures. And so let's, let's think through this and look at some passages of Scripture. Should the scriptures be read? Well, yes, Isaiah 34, 16. You seek out the book of the Lord and read. And should we also cause others to read it? Well, yes, Colossians 4, 16. Paul says, writing a letter to the church at Colossae, says, take this letter and write it, read it also to the church in Laodicea. And how, how should we read these things? How should we read scripture? Well, we should read it attentively. We should be read it diligently. We should persevere in the reading of this. Indeed, Deuteronomy 17, verse 19, tells us that the king, the king of Israel, shall read God's word, read his law, all the days of his life. He should persevere and be diligent in this. Likewise, we learn in the, uh, on the Sabbath day in the Old Testament, the book of God's word was read every Sabbath in the hearing of God's people. We likewise should do the same on the Christian Sabbath, on the Lord's Day, and read God's Word publicly. And so, what is the disposition of the heart that we should have as we approach God's Word? Well, we should begin by reading it in faith. We shall hear God's Word and hear it 
uh, as a faithful one coming to receive the bread of life, not as one coming to judge and be the arbiter of the one uh, of God's revelation. Similarly, we should receive it with meekness. James says in chapter 1, receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. We should likewise be careful. So not merely faithful and meek, but we should be careful. Some things in Scripture are difficult to understand, and so it's to our benefit and it's to honor the Lord that we should read very carefully. Right? Paul, Peter says in 2 Peter 3.16, there are some things which are difficult to understand, some things that aren't easy for us on first glance. And so we should read with diligence and faithfulness, with faith and with great care, so that we can put these seemingly difficult things together. Likewise, we should pursue this as something valuable. Proverbs 2 4 and 5 says, If you seek her, that is wisdom, lady wisdom, if you seek her as silver and search for her as hidden treasure, then you shall understand the fear of the Lord. Do you pursue understanding God's word as something valuable, as something worthwhile, as a task worth pursuing with great diligence and care? And likewise, we should also pursue with prayer. We should prayerfully approach God's word. Open my eyes that I might behold wondrous things out of your law, the psalmist prays in one, Psalm 119, verse 18. And so some reflections upon this. What a good and kind gift of the Lord that we can go to one another and say, go home and read your Bible. That's in the history of the church. That's a relatively recent thing that we each have our own copy of God's word and that that copy is in our language the copy is not merely written and read only in Latin only for the learned only for the priests right it is in English it is in Spanish it is in French it is in Chinese it's in our own given heart language our mother tongue that we can understand God's word well, praise God for that good gift and are we being faithful stewards of that good gift or do we let that word gather dust on the bookshelf? May God grant us his mercy and his illumination by his Holy Spirit as we read God's word and grow in the understanding of it.